I'm your host, Bree. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Bree podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Louise Hanks. Louise is the Associate Director of Restorative Practices at Mendez Middle School, through Communities and Schools of Central Texas. Previously, she was the Director of Training Logistics for the Institute for Restorative Justice and Restorative Dialogue, where she coordinated participation for and co-led restorative practices trainings for educators across Texas. Louise earned her master's degree in social work at the University of Texas at Austin and began her social work career as a volunteer in a local juvenile detention facility where she designed and facilitated writing workshops for young men focused on storytelling. Louise has provided counseling for students at Joby Middle School for families through LifeWorks Austin and spent a year working with parents as a bilingual social worker at Navarro High School's Family Resource Center. Louise is passionate about destigmatizing mental health needs, is currently pursuing her clinical license in order to become a therapist, and has participated wholeheartedly in group and individual therapy for several years. As a mental health professional, social worker, and restorative practitioner. She's passionate about alternatives to police involvement for those who have experienced and caused harm. Luis was recently elected board president for Upper 90, a positive youth development program that uses soccer, restorative practices, and mindfulness to empower young leaders, which has given her the opportunity to serve on the board of Austin FC's 4ATX Foundation. Luis grew up in West Austin. She's been spending a lot of time exploring the ways in which white supremacy shows up in social work and education in herself and in her family, as well as the ways the movement for restorative justice can contribute to the fight for racial justice. Luis enjoys beach volleyball, hot yoga, dancing until she's super sweaty, listening and speaking from the heart, and reading Elena Ferrante novels. Hello, friend. Hi, how's it going? It's great to see, see your face. Great to in see this- you mm-hmm. in, in this weird time of, of COVID quarantine yes. and all the things. Also, congrats on becoming um, yes, exactly. board president of Upper 90. Um, for those of you who have been listening for a while, Caitlin, who was Many moons ago on the show, um, she was the founder of Upper 90. So Luis is the board president of that same org, which is so exciting. And um, Austin FC is kind of absorbed Upper 90, I guess, for lack of a better term. And that's in conjunction with their 4ATX Foundation. So uh, we love it. We love to see it. We love to see women in positions of power. Mm. It's so exciting for me. I'm really, I've just stepped into the role in March um and so it's also been like a a virtual transition but it's been really really fun to learn more about upper 90 and uh and yeah to be with caitlin on the board of austin uh fc's for atx foundation we've only had one meeting so far but it's really exciting 
I love it. We love it. And also, if they need another woman, I'm available mostly because I love soccer. Caitlin has gotten me obsessed with soccer in the last like two years. <laughs> the other earlier this week, um, it was announced that, that LA will have a pro women's team for soccer. And I immediately text Caitlin, like, hi, can Austin do this? Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> like, yes. She's like, have you Great been reading question. the news today? I was like, yes, of course I have. <laughs> so, <laughs> she just uh, accepts, yeah. accepts that she created this monster now. So it's fine. Yeah. Well, she's created so. all sorts of things, I think, including our connection. When you, when you asked me, you're like, yeah, we're going to talk about how we ever met. Oh, yeah. like, okay. When was that? And, I think and it the, was, it was Caitlin. I think the first time we met is when she had that, like, really big restorative justice picnic in the park totally we had a women's circle jordan facilitated i remember yeah i could cry that women's circle was so good it really was it was i know you're right that's when we met and we also had like cheeses and we had all the snacks we were outside in the park we all cried Mm -hmm. together we did (laughs) just a bunch of women crying in the park oh it was great it was perfect i know yeah uh also i too have a background in social work so i'm like oh you you've known this person for two years and look how much y'all have in common which is also why i like love to do this show i'm like let me learn more about my friends and all the cool things that they are doing so yeah i'm excited about that i like i told you a little bit before i was uh listening to more episodes of your podcast this weekend and um, heard you talk about your background in social work and i was like oh i'm gonna add that to this topic so we can talk about that i didn't know that yeah. So let's jump in because you, I think cool. you and Caitlin were probably the first two people to even tell me about restorative justice. So I think like stepping back and explaining what restorative justice is, the practice around it, um, how y'all kind of use it specifically with Upper 90 and the work that y'all are doing, I think would be like a really great like um, launching off point for the people at home. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And that's always the challenge. And there's this sort of, uh, you know, what's the elevator speech? Um, And the answer is always, there isn't one. It's way more, it's complicated. And there's so much that could be left out of the question of what is it that I get like, yeah, nervous about trying to sum it up quickly. Um, But I'm going to do my best. I certainly do that all the time. And and you you have all the time you need. It's my show. (laughs) Oh, great. Perfect. Yeah. And I like that. Restorative justice, one of the one of the principles is definitely around the idea of not rushing people about uh, meeting people where they're at and letting them take the take the time that they need. So so I will thank you for that. Um, Gosh, okay, what is it? Well, I'd say a couple things. Uh, sort of justice is sort of the more overarching umbrella of um, and then and then under that is restorative practices in schools. Um, which I think Upper 90 is really using and which I use in my, in my job every day at Mendez. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's a great place to start is what is restorative justice? I, uh, I think some people think of it as like a way of viewing people in the world or a different way of even conceptualizing questions of justice. So it originated in Fania Davis. Um, I've been reading her book recently. She's Angela Davis's sister. She runs Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth in California. Um, So what do I want to say? First, I want to say it's, yeah, in some ways, uh, if we think about it as compared to the criminal justice system, which is a good place to kind of wrap your head around, what does that, what does it mean, this idea of justice? In traditional justice, school justice, criminal justice, we ask three questions, which are... Uh, what rule was broken, who did it, and what do they deserve now? And that applies to, you know, a situation in school or any sort of law or crime that is potentially committed. 
who did it, what rule do they break, what do they deserve? And in restorative justice, it's uh, three different questions, which is who got hurt or who was impacted, what do they need, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs? So it's really this different philosophy. In one situation, the concern is on the rules and the punishment. And in restorative justice, it's about the harm and the needs that were created by the harm that was caused. Um, so in some ways, it's a, a different way to even think about the question of justice, the question of healing, the question of when, some, when something wrong happens, when the wrongdoing occurs, what, what is our response to that? Um, I think it's important to say, too, in this book, Fania Davis talking about how restorative justice is a new but old justice, meaning it's a lot of the principles and practices uh, come from indigenous teachings and wisdom from all over the world. So in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a pre-colonization way of thinking about justice and harm and repair. Um, and also it's new in the sense that it's sort of this like social movement that uh, rose up in the mid 70s and 80s in the criminal justice system as a response to people saying what they're doing there is not working. In fact, it's making everything worse. Um, so yeah, I like that she talks about it as a, a sort of a new and old justice. And then I think in schools, so you take that kind of framework and then you apply it to a public school setting uh, or any school setting. But there, I think it's really about a process for building, strengthening, repairing relationships in schools. Um, so it's not only an alternative to discipline and how we respond to, to discipline in schools, but it's also about like, how do we build relationship uh, with each other between students, between staff, between students and staff, families, community partners? What is the quality of those relationships? Investing in them, the language we use. Um, and then when something goes wrong within those relationships, what do we do to to try to make it better. And right now in schools, we do a lot of uh, suspending exclusion um, and those things just like mirrored in the criminal justice system often make things worse for students and their families. And so it's a way of um, responding to something that happens that can essentially leave everybody in a better place. The person who caused the harm in the incident and the, and the, the victim or the person who experienced harm. And the community too. I think that's one thing that's unique to restorative justice is it's not just seeing this sort of like a victim offender type dichotomy. It's also this idea of community role and accountability and that the community needs also alternatives to the way that things go because uh, they're impacted indirectly by any sort of car harm that gets caused. Anyway, I could go, I could redefine that <laughs> seven times. I've really been been thinking about the best way to explain it, but I hope I hope that helps. I think that's good. <laughs> I think also the 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 ability to be able to talk about like what happened and what that person did and like not so much like putting blame but just being able to like come into a space and talk about it period and being like I think what was really helpful for me having done that restorative or that woman's group I mean that woman's circle with y'all just like being able to talk about our experiences and how I was able to talk about things I had been through and you were in this circle of like being believed and validated and just being mm -hmm. like no judgment and you're just giving given a space and time to really work things out and in a group of people who also know how difficult it is to do this work so I always think about the restorative part of that of just being like accepted and validated and seen um 
as you know someone who has gone through and perpetuated trauma with other people who have also gone who've gone through and perpetuated it as well so i love that that's so useful as a um sort of your reflection of the experience of the women's circle sometimes i get lost in the sort of overarching theory behind it but yeah so like what also, it's important to say that restorative practices, restorative justice has this like wide range of things that are practices. And one of them is the circle process, which, yes, we got to participate in together that day with Jordan. Um, and that's how it shows up at Upper 90, which is another thing that you would mention, which is that they use the circle process to do team circle where the talking piece is the soccer ball and the circle has a different theme and maybe it's about family things that you love about your family and fun traditions that you have things that are hard or difficult in your memories about your family things that you want to do in the future or create as you begin to create family around you so circles will have a sort of a topic and then just like you said give every single person space to speak not force anybody ever to speak right um design the questions in a way that are super trauma-informed but there's they're very intentional these processes and i think that's important one thing that's hard for me is sort of watching people grab it as a toolbox and then go run with it and drop it on a group of kids and it's like wait 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 the way we're asking the questions, the way we're setting the tone, the safety that you're trying to create in these conversations is as important as any part of that process. And it gets skipped often. And I, I think when it's done well, it's very trauma informed and lets people speak to each other and hear each other in a way that we're not always used to. Yeah, cool. I like that hearing about that. That memory for me is special too in the park. Crying in the park. <laughs> yep. Yeah, very or, special. Uh, also, like it was a lot of us like the first time mm-hmm. us really meeting because like that was my first time meeting both of the Jordans, you. I had met Emily in passing once or twice, but like I only really knew Alicia and Caitlin, right? And there was like eight yeah. kind of us there. So, mm-hmm. and now here we are like two years later, all of us like so intertwined. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I always tell people like if you could do a restorative justice circle, like with all of your really close friends and like new people coming in, it just like really sets the tone. But I'm also like in really into like he, like healing circles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm also like I'm... <laughs> I'm into it too, but I think actually like a lot of what's interesting about my work these days is because everything is transferred online. Um, one thing I'm, I've been mentioning to people, depending on the audience, but you know, can we, before we get down to business on this Zoom, take a minute to check in with each person, to get acquainted, where are people at? How's everybody doing? Do we want to, is there anything people might want to mention? Or even using some restorative practices in those virtual meetings, restorative practices is very concerned with values, right? And, And so it's really helpful. It's hard to stay present on Zoom. And so we'll ask sort of each person, hey, like what value are you willing to channel for the next hour while we're all together can you and people will say like whatever it is I'm gonna you know stay really curious or stay really present or patient which is hard to do for a couple hours on zoom with everything going awry um so using some of that just to kind of even if people don't know each other set the tone slow down check in where are people at how do we what do we want our intentions for this conversation to be how do we want to treat each other on this zoom call where it's so easy to get super annoyed uh, I think all of those things are important these days, sometimes more than ever. Yeah. I also am really interested in knowing how y'all use it with Upper 90, um, especially mm-hmm. with the population that y'all serve. I mean, predominantly youth of color, 
um, using it in conjunction with the sport of soccer, um, where a lot of the coaches, you know, I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it, it's pretty even keeled. Like part of like half of the coaches are people of color and the other half aren't. Um, but I'm just always interested in, in hearing that because as a person of color, you know, with me, even just looking for a therapist of color is sometimes difficult. So I think about that too. Like you are now having these youth of color talking to people who don't look like them, who maybe don't have the same experiences, asking them to be very vulnerable as such an age where it's like not cool to be vulnerable. Um, yep. I'm, I'm very interested in how y'all have gotten that to work in, in this setting. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think the restorative circle is a particularly good process for, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot recently about like cultural humility, not just cultural proficiency or competency, but the willingness to say like, I don't know, right? I don't know people's experiences. I don't know um, sometimes even what to say about something that's difficult. And I think it can be really painful when white people who are leading a group of children who are primarily kids of color, when they pretend to know everything or explain everything, it, it could be really shitty. I've certainly been in the room where that's happening. Um, and I think what's beautiful about the circle process is that when you're leading a circle, you're not leading it. So I shouldn't even use that word. You're a participant. You are a human. And the, and the idea is uh, you're coming there. You might be the person that introduces the question. You're speaking from your own experience and your own perspective your own family and you're sharing the space like if I don't have the talking piece then I'm facilitating the circle I can't say anything unless I think somebody's like getting hurt or safety's been compromised I could say hey let's shut this down but I can say um, to a group of students and I, I haven't as much with upper 90 but certainly at, at Mendez so much is going on in the world with Black Lives Matter right now I imagine that there's a lot of feelings coming up, a lot of ideas. What are some of those things for you? That could be a circle question. And what I do in that moment is I don't have to be an expert, but I do have to just come from my truth, which is however I would answer that question. I might go first. I might say, does anyone want to volunteer to go first in case they don't want to dominate the tone? Um, and share, hey, this is what's going on for me. These are some things I've been doing or feeling to try to take action. What about you? And I passed the talking piece and it turns out, you know, there's 15 people in there. I only speak a 15th of the time, if that. And I think that it's a really good way to make sure that people aren't taking up too much space, especially white people facilitating uh, or leading any sort of groups of kids. It gives you the power to say, there's some things I know and some things I don't know. Um, so I can speak from what I do know in my own experience, and then I can just really listen for the next hour. So I think that that's helpful. I think it's also about designing the questions in ways that make everyone feel like they have an answer if they want to, like the no questions are unanswerable, let's say. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I'm trying to think of a question that would be unanswerable. But what if I said something awful, like, like, what's your favorite thing about what's happening right now? And people are like, I don't have any favorite things, right? So you're trying to make them neutral um, so that people could feel however they want to about the topic. And then I think the right to pass is deeply important to me. There are certainly students that have sat in circles with me. Um, and adults too, because I facilitate teacher circles more than anything um, at my campus. But, you know, people that'll come and listen and pass every time because they're not sure that they trust you yet. They don't know if they trust other people sitting there. They do want to be maybe a part of the conversation or be a listener, but uh, there is just zero pressure to say anything. Um, and I think that's important too. And I, 
I think that there are adults in schools leading circles who do pressure kids to talk. And that's something I immediately catch and say, hey, hold on, this is not, this is a voluntary process. Um, and whenever we switch into the mode of power and control, we've lost the spirit of what we're trying to do here. Um, I don't know if that perfectly answers your question, but I think- No, it does. I think for right. me, the, the biggest thing is also like the ability to pass. Like I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, I don't think people understand how important that is in a group setting, whether it's like group therapy, support groups, circles like this of being like, you know, oh, this person can attend this thing, but still not be ready to talk, but is willing to be vulnerable enough to just be in that space and listen to other stuff. And, and you know, and by listening to those, those stories, maybe one day they'll be ready to share. But I think a lot of people always think like, well, if you show up at this thing, you have to share. And I think what I really loved about restorative justice is you can show up and listen and be and hold, um, hold, uh, empathy and and support in a way of just showing up for it right like not having to be vulnerable that day or you know or you know it could change from each time you go like some days you'll want to share and some days you won't and stuff some stuff will be in the circle that's really heavy that you just feel like maybe it's not now is not the time for you to say something so yeah I think that's very important I do too and I think it has a lot to do with consent the right to pass too like what are we teaching kids about consent and not just in the like the world of sexual assault but in the world of like when are the moments in your life when we force you to do things you don't want to do and you end up having to say yes mm-hmm. um and I think we do that to kids all the time all the and then time. we're like why don't you just say no and it's like well because I do say no all the time and then I get in trouble for it <laughs> yeah. um and I so think for me, I, it's, I think for me yeah. it's like consent is consent kind of equating to boundary setting too, right? Like the more we learn to say no to things of like, you know, something as simple for me of like, do you want to have this for dinner? And me saying no, as an adult, it's nothing. But as a kid to be like, no, I don't want this. And their parents like, well, that's all I have for you to do. But instead of listening to a kid, like I had, if a kid says, no, I don't want green beans and we just cut them off versus like, I don't want green beans because I had green beans for lunch today. Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. we don't give kids the space to like explain why they answer is no. We just jumped at the fact that the answer is no. Um, I've also seen a lot of my friends who have become parents of, you know, if my kid doesn't want to hug you, I'm not going to force my kid to hug you. Or if my kid doesn't want to, you know, do X, Y, and Z, that is like not a fight that we're willing to fight that day. I'm not going to, you know, make them do it. And I I think we're seeing that a lot in our generation as our friends and peers become parents of how we are trying to stop that cycle of trauma that we had to deal with, right? So much. I love this idea of boundaries. I think in the circle process, part of it too is just like part of boundaries are learning to listen. Part of it is waiting your turn and not speaking when, you know, or yeah, deciding I'm not going to, I'm not ready yet. I've been thinking recently about this idea of no as well in my own world of being a participant in in therapy. Um, Just like the, did I learn as a kid? And who knows how deeply I really want to go into this, but like, did I get told no when I needed to be told no? So it's like the boundaries are complicated because part of it is like, let's listen to kids when they say no. And also like, let's tell them no when they really, really want to, but it's just not a good idea for them. Um, Like some people can't hear no as adults. I'm working on it. Um, I think with masks, Every time I see this like mask tantrum bullshit adult, like I can't wear a mask. I'm just like, oh my God, nobody taught you how to hear no <laughs> when you were two. Um, and so there's this complication of, but I think you're right. It's about internal boundaries too. Like, how do I say no to myself when I know it's not a good idea and I'm not ready yet? How do I say yes? How do I respond when other people tell me no? Um, it's all, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot there <laughs> for sure. 
Yeah. And I was talking to a friend this morning. We are, we both broke up with our partners, our last partners around the same time. And so like with me, part of my boundary is blocking people on social media. And I tell people it's not because like, I don't care about that person. It's because I can't see it. And so like, I know if I have quote access to be able to like see their Instagram more quickly, I will go look at it. So like my, Mm -hmm. one of my exes, that ex I'm referring to, um, when we stopped communicating um, and stopped seeing each other, I blocked him on Instagram, not because I didn't care about him, but because I didn't want to go look. So like now, yes, I could go unblock him in my unblock feed situation, but that's like an extra step. And so I'm like, listen, and, and in that extra step, I'm asking myself, why are you willing to put so much effort towards essentially causing yourself harm? Because you mm-hmm. know, going to his Instagram isn't going to do anything for you. So like in that yeah. like three seconds between me pulling up my Instagram, going to my, you know, account settings, block, like all these different steps I have to take in that five to 10 seconds, I get to sit with myself like, what, what is, how is this going to serve me? Versus like, if I just typed his name in and could find it in 20, in less time, I would be more amped to look at it. And so like, I tell people part of my boundaries is really asking myself, what is the purpose? Well, how is this serving me? And then also telling people like, as a person who lost her mother when I was really young, Mm. I am really good at taking account of who and what is important in my life. And then when my dad and I stopped talking when I was 18, I am really good at like separating my feelings about this person versus the trauma and pain they caused me. Like I can still very much love my dad, but keep that at a at a distance because I still don't trust wholeheartedly that I won't get hurt again. And I tell people like, that's how I feel about social media when I block people. It's like, I can still love this person, but still not want to see their stuff because I know it's going to hurt me in the long run. I love that. That sounds brave and hard and like a constant journey that I relate to a lot. Block and unblock. I don't know what that means about me. (laughs) But I love this question of, um, yeah, is how is this serving me? And I've definitely been thinking about this idea of boundaries around consumption. Mm. What am I consuming? Um, Because I think that is a that is sort of what you're referring to. And as a kid, as a kid, they were, you know, I was trying to consume anything I could get my hands on. Like, I want to watch R rated movies when I'm seven. I want to I'm ready. You know, I have two older brothers and I'm anything that they can do, I can do too. Like, don't like, I've just really struggled with no, I really struggled with this idea that I wasn't ready for something that didn't make any sense to me. And so I did everything I could to just consume as much as possible. Um, And, and now, (laughs) now I'm like, whoa, I love the idea of protecting some innocence for kids or for this idea of sometimes we're just not ready and you have to hear no and it's hard. Um, and definitely with my family, I've, I haven't really interacted with either of my parents in, a, in several months, which has been a weird um, experience, a hard experience for me, especially during a global pandemic. Um, but it's about an exploration of boundaries within my family, for sure. So, and yeah, and, and sort of like how close can we get I don't know if that's the question, but what you were saying about like, I'm not sure if we get really close that I'll be able to like put in place what I need at this time. Yeah. I mean, a a lot of my friends, I was like, I wish I had your ability to set boundaries. And I was like, it's a constant journey. Like it's not Mm -hmm. a clear cut every day. I'm just fine. Right. Like 
it is literally work to make sure that I am staying true to myself and putting my needs above the needs of others. And I think a lot of the time, like when I've blocked people and they like reach out to me and be like, why did you block me? And I was like, it's nothing personal, honestly. It's just, I didn't need to see it anymore. And I know that, and I know for me, I just didn't want you to have access to me anymore. And I know people think it's like so frivolous because it's social media and our profiles are, are public, but I'm also like, yes, but if I can see that you looked at my stuff, but you don't take enough initiative to have me in your life still like why are you looking at my stuff why do you want to be like why do you want to quote consume what I'm offering but you don't want to have me in your life in the same breath and so for me it's Mm -hmm. been setting that boundary too of I can wish you well but still put myself first in these situations yeah and it takes courage to stick with that like I think I'm just in the personal stage of realizing I got to do that and then I do and and struggle. So yeah, I like what she said about it's a journey. It's really about like, how do I wake up and keep practicing this every day? It doesn't just uh, arrive at a destination and suddenly I've got great boundaries and everything's okay. Right. <laughs> um, it's harder than that. <laughs> right. Um, I do want to shift gears and talk about the restorative justice around racial Mm -hmm. justice and Mm -hmm. the whiteness of therapy and social work. And I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, with my history of working in social work, I worked with predominantly people of color, mostly, and then mostly people of color, and then also working in different communities. So it started with me working with um, children and adults with developmental disabilities, then went to work for school with children of autism, and then went to work for a nonprofit that served adults and families that had been experiencing homelessness. And then I did um, affordable housing. I went to United Way. And then I was at Out Youth serving LGBTQA youth. So I always tell people, like, there's like a long timeline. of, yeah. and, I, and I do every job for like two years. So I'm like, let's see what I can do in two years. And then mm-hmm. um, so I always think of that of me coming in as a woman who is Black, who is queer, and how beneficial that was to people who I was serving. A, if they were people of color to have someone who could connect with them on that level. Also, like with parents whose kids I was taking care of was a really big deal for me. Um, And then also with queer youth who maybe were Black or people of color who didn't see anyone who looked like them in these spaces. And so I always think about that of how important the representation of that is. But then also, you know, my friend Grace was on a few episodes back and she works at a school with children who um, have um, behaviors and a lot of behaviors are um, like really physical behaviors. And so she sometimes has to has to put students into holds. And one of the things she always, she always thinks about is, you know, how her as a white woman putting a youth of color in a hold can be very similar to when they are arrested and how traumatizing that can be. And so mm-hmm. with me, it's been a lot of thinking around that work specifically, you know, how my experience has been working in these communities and then also thinking the other side of how often youth and people and adults don't get to work with people who look like them. And so I think, especially right now with the conversations we're having around Black Lives Matter and everything else going on to have people who are in these positions really focusing on how this is impactful And I think this is really making me think about it because yesterday I was on Instagram and there was this doctor, this white woman doctor, and she was talking about the the sort of stereotype and trope that like black people don't feel pain like white people do, which is this really big thing Mm -hmm. in healthcare, which is why black people are so fucked over in the healthcare system and why the why black mothers die at an alarmingly higher rate, why black people suffer from diseases more often, how often black people are tested on were tested on our history. And I think it kind of all trickles down like the positions of power. So 
Mm -hmm. I know that was a lot, but that's kind of why I want to really unpack this and the importance of uh, if you are a person in this position of power in social work and in schools, especially with you talking about like the suspension rate in the school to prison pipeline, like how can we collectively and people who are in these positions of power work to dismantle that in schools? So much importance. Everything you said sounds so important. One thing I think I would note is it does, I'm excited to hear about your extensive history in social work. I didn't know you'd worked at so many different places and so many different areas. One thing I've, I've always valued about the profession is that um, there's so many different settings, meaning like you don't, you know, study one thing and then you're suddenly working in hospitals forever. But uh, there's social workers in a lot of different um, areas and places. And so you really can get a varied experience. And um, let me think, which piece to touch on? There's so much. I think trying to think where to start. We could talk about um, whiteness and social work and what's that, what that is like. I mean, I think it, just like you said, like, isn't it, and I don't know if you said it like this, but this question of like, how are the clients or the people that social workers are serving impacted by uh the, the, their social worker, right? Their identity of their social worker. How does that shape their experience? I think that's uh, a really important question. I think a couple of things. One, I think social work is super white, uh, way too white, founded by white ladies in the 20s, founded on a lot of saviorism shit that needs to be reworked. I, ever since I went through the master's program, you'll hear me say in circles and other locations, just that part of what's interesting to me or why I focus on restorative justice while studying social work was because there was so much about the curriculum that I found problematic, but I took a restorative justice course and it really helped me think about like, how are we serving people? The difference between service and helping or mm. service and saving. And for me, the restorative justice framework and theory gave me a way to do social work without having to rely on some of those traditional ways of helping people that I think sometimes cause more harm. Even so though, right? Like even if you're coming at it in a restorative justice lens or a relational cultural theory framework, all these different sort of ways of accounting for the identity of the social worker and, and how that impacts their client. I'd say a couple things. I think I'm always on the lookout within myself and with other white social workers of just like, to what extent are you making this about you? And, and how do you minimize that uh, as much as possible? Like you should be working yourself out of a job, right? You don't, we don't want social workers here forever, right? This idea of like, oh, there's always going to be this problem. And that's why we're here to help. It's mm -hmm. like, no, your job is to make this problem less of a problem. Um, and if you are just excited about fixing it and how great it is that you did that, then we're misdirected here. What else would I say? I think it's just true. I say we just totally accept it. Hey, if the identities of the person, the social worker are more aligned with the identities of the people they're serving, they may be more impactful. Like I wouldn't, I don't think I would just say like white people could be just as effective. Like maybe not. Um, I do think that they're given that there are a lot of social workers who are white. Um, lots of things I would say are important. I think even just like social work curriculum, what we're learning in school, we study so many things but about identity. We don't study whiteness. That's crazy. Mm. <laughs> uh, how does whiteness show up in social work and you and your family and the way that you do work? How can you uh, watch out for that? None of those questions are asked uh, in training. I think that's problematic. And I think that in terms of like power, what are we 
how are we, for me, if I'm thinking restorative practice in schools, the long-term vision and in working with kids at Upper 90, all of these places is I don't want to be the one to come up with the questions and be the leader of the circle and, oh, it's so great. She did such a great circle. I'm always thinking, how do we focus on student-led initiatives? So a group of students, maybe they're participating in circle with me so they can get the experience and get to know each other. But then the focus shifts to what questions do they want to ask? Can they practice it? Can they design and facilitate their own circles where I'm not even there? Because my presence might be probably likely is impacting their ability to discuss what they want to organize in the way that they want to who knows so I think making spaces for people where white people just aren't there are, or aren't needed is could be useful and if it, if it's the case where uh, then I just try to acknowledge it you know like I wonder if my presence is having an impact here um, or how can I let's talk about it let's put it in the room and I don't know I think it depends on everything it depends on the group the levels of trust what they want and don't want. Uh, but I think making sure to acknowledge it and make sure that the people who are most impacted are sort of at the center of the decision making. What would be best for them? What are their needs? Um, this idea of self-determination in social work, I think, is extremely important. And then when it comes to the second part about like dismantling this school to prison pipeline, whew, that's a long story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a really long story. But I, part of the reason I wanted to talk about it for the same reason is about like right now, you know, in the Chronicle, I'm trying to think of other news sources where this has been popping up, but there's this big call, right, for divesting from the police, school police officers, uh, which I would fully support with a good plan in place towards like uh, this call for restorative practices. Let's, let's get this going. Um, What does that look like? I think it looks like a lot of things. One thing that's awesome about Austin is that AISD has a grant. um, It's called the Education and Innovation Research Grant, and it's run by Dr. Angela Ward and Sarah Johnson. Uh, So they have already two years ago initiated culturally responsive restorative practices on 10 different campuses. Mine is one of them. I work with one of their amazing people, Diana Tremino um, at Mendez. And so I think there's a lot of good like infrastructure in place in terms of like cool people in charge, a great team of people who understand and are working with restorative practices. And I think one thing that's beautiful about their approach is that it's like uh, deliberate and slow. Like, people get really excited really quickly. Like, oh, we need to, school discipline is horrible the way it's done now. Let's throw it out and replace it. And I think if you move too quickly, then you can end up just sort of perpetuating the same issues. Or people could be in a restorative circle where the somebody's been harmed and they're trying to repair it. And if it isn't well thought out, well prepared, well facilitated, followed up on, given all that's needed in order to really respect people's pain and needs, people could just get re-traumatized right. uh, very quickly. And so I like, um, at CIS, uh, we're also sort of focusing in a unique way on restorative practices these days. And I I hope that it continues to expand throughout our city in a way that is led by people of color and um, slow and deliberate and meaningful. I think both of those things are really important to at least addressing the school to prison pipeline in, in Austin. I think that is a great place to wrap up. <laughs> Beautiful. I think this is a very informative conversation. I hope that everyone starts doing restorative justice and circles and just enjoying being on 
and community as much as we can, air quotes, because I know we're still in quarantine. So still, you know, social distance, wash your hands, all things. As you know, at the end of each episode, <laughs> I like to ask a question, a final question, a sort of mm-hmm. palate cleanser. What is the best advice you were ever given? Or what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Every time I talk about restorative justice, I always talk about Janice Jerome, who is my sort of mentor in this work. She's the executive director of the Restorative Justice Institute of Atlanta. Um, I think their website is justicemoving.org. I don't know if that's true. Um, (laughs) So it's something like that. I'm I'm typing it in as I'm talking to see if that's the right place. I don't think it is. Um, But yeah, she's RJIA, Restorative Justice Institute of Atlanta. She used to uh, be the assistant director at UT when I was there. And so we shared a little office. And so much of what I have come to understand about about restorative justice, about uh, implementation in schools is based on her wisdom and knowledge and love for the work. And one thing that she told me to move at the speed of trust And I believe she said her friend Jamie had told her that from Minnesota and who knows who told it to Jamie. So I don't know where that that quote gets truly credited. But this idea of moving at the speed of trust, I think, has been really important in my own life and also in the work that I'm doing. I think people are really eager to get down to business really quickly. Uh, They skip the part where they humanize the other person. They check in with them. They build some trust, some relationship. And then from that space what are we talking about? What are we going to do? What action can we take? But people love to jump straight to action, straight to business. Um, And she always, every time I try to do that, because I was trained to do that, I was raised to do that. She just slow me right down. Just be like, hey, wait, hold on, back up. Like we're still in trust. We're still getting acquainted. Like just, and when I would call her the first year of initiating all of these restorative practices at Mendez, because it's been a couple of years now, and sound really overwhelmed, she would remind me of the same thing to you know, focus on building trust, focus on building a connection, less focused on the outcome, instead focused on the process and your values. Are you channeling those? Are you here today? Are you building trust? Are you making a connection? If you're doing that, it matters. So yeah, that has, that has helped me in, in a thousand ways, um, that advice. I also like the way that you worded it in the, in the document you sent me where you're talking about like something advice you give to your younger self. And it just reminded me that I, you know, in the world of therapy, it's like, just talk to little Louise, you know, <laughs> like, um, and I know we didn't talk much about therapy and we, we should sometime soon and, uh, and access and all of those important questions about therapy. But I have just been like, really, when I'm freaking out in my head, I'm just like, okay, little Louise freaking out. What is she worried about? Talk to her. Like I would talk to a seven-year-old girl. Cause I'm pretty good at that. Um, and the more I do that, uh, the more I'm able to kind of like move into the next space mentally um, that I'm trying to go. So yeah, anyway, both of those pieces have been important to me during the last few months for sure. I love that. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website theteawithbreepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music, and I will talk to y'all next week. Bye. Bye.